Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today, we return to Sandy's case. These last two weeks have been difficult to say the least. I know that it's been a little upsetting for some of you that we've been off topic a bit, but trust me when I say that Mike, Shane, and I are doing our absolute best to continue to dig deeper into our investigation of Jim's murder. As soon as I'm done recording this, I'm getting on a plane and heading home for the first time since February 23rd. I'll have six days at home before I'm back on the road again for three more weeks. While all this travel is making things difficult for our production, trust me when I tell you that it's all for a greater good. With that being said, it's time to jump back into Sandy's trial. I've often asked myself how the jury came to some of their conclusions, specifically when it comes to Sandy changing her story during her police interrogation. In today's episode, we're going to get a much clearer picture of just how that happened. And that's through the testimony of Detective James Doucet. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sergeant James Doucet, at the time of trial, had been working with the Harris County Sheriff's Department for over 28 years. He has a long and seemingly successful career. He began working in the jail. He then spent 16 years working as a patrol officer before being promoted to the burglary and theft division as a detective. After that, he moved on to narcotics and vice and even did some undercover work for a while. Right around 2007, Doucet was moved into the homicide division. He spent eight years as a homicide detective, and at the time of Jim's murder, he'd been working in that capacity for about five years. By the time the trial had rolled around in 2017, he had moved into the FBI's Houston Family Crimes Task Force. On the night that Jim and Sandy were discovered in their closets, Doucet and the rest of the homicide squad were actually working on another homicide across town. At that point, their sergeant called and directed Doucet to head over to the other crime scene to assist the lead investigator with conducting interviews. 
He received that call at approximately 5.21 p.m., about 40 minutes after the first Precinct 4 units had arrived on scene. During direct examination, Doucet says that he had learned prior to his arrival that there was a male victim who possibly had multiple stab wounds. When he arrived on scene, he was met by Jennifer Martinez. We heard from a couple weeks ago, and she briefed him on the incident. Let me refresh your memory on the timeline of events. Stephanie Roberts testified that she arrived on the scene at about 4.45 p.m. She spent approximately an hour assessing Sandy before she was escorted out to a squad car. Jennifer Martinez testified that she was present during the entire assessment. So at approximately 5.45 p.m., Martinez and Sandy exited the residence, which would be right about the same time that Doucet was arriving on the scene. And per Martinez's testimony, I would assume that this would be the briefing where she supposedly advised Doucet that Sandy didn't have any tears when she was crying. Doucet, however, makes no mention of this in his report or in his testimony. When Doucet entered the house, everyone was out. Sandy, Herman, and family. The crime scene had been secured, and only investigators were inside from that point forward. Doucet was not the lead investigator in this case, though. That duty was assigned to Sean Carazal. Doucet's assignment was interviews and assisting the lead investigator. About 10 pages into direct, Barnett begins to move toward the meat and potatoes of Doucet's testimony. She begins by asking him on the record if he approaches this case, or any case really, with an open mind. Doucet assures her that his mind was wide open when he entered the scene that night. Quote, you want to be careful not to get tunnel vision. You want to keep an open mind because the possibilities are there. I mean, at that point, it was wide open. End quote. Doucet goes on to confirm that he did not see any signs of forced entry, which was expected. Then he explains that he wanted to talk to Sandy because she was the only potential witness who was present in the home when the murder occurred. He testified that he had been made aware of the fact that Sandy claims to have no memory of what happened by Deputy Jennifer Martinez during his initial briefing. He asked Sandy if she'd be willing to go to the station for an interview, and she voluntarily agreed to do so. And this interview is going to be the major focal point of today's episode. As you'll see once we move a little forward today, a large portion of Doucet's testimony was a play-by-play commentary while playing the DVD of Sandy's interrogation. Doucet says that he introduced himself to Sandy at the scene, and she was compliant and answered all of the questions he had for her. But he also said that she seemed indifferent. He described her as having a cold stare. Now, I'm sure that the implication here was that Sandy didn't seem to care that her husband had been murdered. But that's not how I see it at all. An indifferent, cold stare to me sounds like someone who's in shock, confused, or experiencing a petite mal seizure or an aura. Put yourself in that position. You find out that your spouse has been brutally murdered. You're screaming and crying hysterically and have to be calmed down by police and EMS for an hour just to get basic information out of you. Then you're put into a squad car to sit by yourself for hours. What would your facial expression be? Would you scream and cry for hours and hours on end? Would you go through waves of emotion? Would you sometimes just stare into space, lost in your thoughts, trying to wrap your head around what just happened? I honestly don't know what I would do or how I would react. Doucet goes on to describe the process of taking Sandy in for the interview. He was very clear in stating that at the time, Sandy was not in custody and she was not a suspect. She was just a witness. Which is important because the rules change dramatically when you're interviewing a suspect in custody as opposed to a witness who's free to leave at any time. 
You've all heard the interview, so you can make up your own mind. Personally, I don't believe for one second that Sandy wasn't considered a suspect at the time. Doucet goes on to explain the multiple trainings that he's attended, qualifying him to conduct interviews. Most notably, the Reed technique. Any of you who have been listening for any length of time are familiar with Reed. The technique is considered the gold standard in interview and interrogation techniques. It's a psychological approach to drawing information out of reluctant witnesses and suspects. According to the Reed Handbook, the purpose of the technique is to find the truth, to convince the interviewee that they will experience psychological relief when they speak their truth. And while the Reed technique is extremely effective, the success comes at a cost. As false confession expert Jim Trainum stated on this show during season one, sending detectives into the interrogation room after achieving Reed certification is like giving a doctor a prescription pad without informing them of the potential side effects of the medications they're prescribing. It's a powerful tool for drawing confessions out of potential suspects. Unfortunately, it's also extremely efficient at eliciting false confessions. The Reed technique, in a nutshell, is psychological warfare. Doucet speaks a little bit about what he's learned in his retraining. Quote, They teach how to approach witnesses, how to talk with them, and what to look for as far as truthfulness and deceptiveness. They teach signs of deception, things to identify when a person is answering questions or being interviewed. End quote. Barnett uses this as a springboard to begin her dig into Sandy. You remember that during much of her interview, Sandy had her head down, especially during the end. Jim Fitzgerald saw a woman experiencing extreme emotional distress. Barnett wants to know what Doucet was seeing. Quote, is eye contact important? Doucet, it is somewhat. Barnett, talk to me about that. Doucet, okay, there's signs of deception. Some people won't look at you all the time. However, there are things that they will do that will show deception. I mean, a lie is more difficult. Mac interjects here. Texas law prohibits any witness from opining as to the truthfulness or deceptiveness of a witness's statement. The jury is the finder of fact, and it's up to them to determine the credibility of any witnesses and or statements. But then Barnett points out that she didn't ask Doucet to do that, and the judge allows the testimony to continue. Back to the transcript. Doucet, a lie is more difficult. It's more demanding than telling the truth. It requires more effort to maintain consistency and demonstrate details in an imagined story. That leads to increased pauses and answers. Barnett, do you believe that body language is important in observation when you're interviewing the witness? Yes. Is it important what they do with their hands? It is. Is it important how their posture is? Yes. Are you considering all of those things when you're interviewing a witness? Yes. Barnett is about to play the interrogation video, and she's using Doucet's testimony to prompt the jury to look for signs of pauses, lack of eye contact, and strange movements with her hands. The problem is that while Doucet isn't wrong, assessing a witness's veracity is far more complicated than just those few lines. Let's take eye contact as an example. There are absolutely no hard and fast rules for eye contact. Looking up, looking down, looking left, or looking right... It's basically reading tea leaves without context. Doucet did make a very good point. A lie requires far more effort than telling the truth. Speaking about an actual memory is not a complicated transaction. It's natural. It's what your mind and body want to do. But when you're crafting a lie, 
there are different centers of your brain that have to fire to get the job done. Think about it like a professor asking you to write an original short story. You have to create characters, scenes, and details. There's quite a bit of effort involved, and for most, it's uncomfortable. It would be much easier if the assignment was to simply write down an event that you actually experienced. The distinction is important to understand, because when you're evaluating someone's truthfulness, you're not actually looking for signs that they're lying. You're looking for signs that they're uncomfortable. When someone tells a lie, they are using the cognitive centers of the brain, and they're fighting against the body's natural desire to tell the truth. There's a whole list of physical responses to discomfort. Men tend to touch their faces, women touch their upper chest or neck. As a prehistoric response, oftentimes people will subconsciously protect their vital organs by crossing their arms over their chest. The list goes on and it's long, and it sounds pretty easy, right? You don't look me in the eye, you rub your face, and then cross your arms over your chest. I know that you're lying to me. Except, maybe I have social anxiety, or fall into the ASD spectrum, or for any other reason, I never look people in the eye when I'm speaking to them. And maybe I've recently grown a beard, and I'm constantly stroking it. And maybe I think my shirt makes me look fat, so I like to keep my arms crossed. The point is that all of these, quote, indicators of deception are meaningless without context and without establishing a baseline. In fact, that's exactly what the re-technique teaches. The first phase of any interview is rapport building and a fact-finding interview. Essentially, you just let the person speak. Let them give their versions of events on the record. You work on earning the trust of the person you're interviewing and pay close attention to their physical behaviors when they aren't under excessive stress. This is an area where I feel Dusein Corazal dropped the ball in Sandy's interview. She's never really given the opportunity to give a free-flowing narrative. She's put under stress very early into the interview, so a clear baseline was never established. Aside from all that, all of these indicators that I just mentioned are just that. They're indicators. There's no such thing as a human lie detector. At the trial, Barnett does a really good job of setting up the interview. She highlights with Doucet certain elements that she knows are going to be there when the jury watches the video. She pauses a lot, she doesn't look the interviewers in the eyes very often, and she holds her hands over her face a lot. She cleverly nudges the jury to look for these indicators of deception and then plays the video for them. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like I mentioned, Barnett does a play-by-play -play as the video is running for the jury. 
She stops it in several places to ask Doucet questions. At the very beginning of the interview, as Doucet and Curazal are entering the room, Sandy lifts up her pant leg and tells them that no one has taken pictures of her ankles. Quote, They didn't take pictures of my ankles. My legs were tied up too. End quote. One of the detectives responds, quote, Okay, we'll get to that in a second. But they didn't get to it in a second. In fact, no one ever took a single picture of Sandy's ankles or legs. Barnett highlights this exchange for the jury, the implication being that Sandy wants to bolster her story by proving that she had ligature marks on her legs. These types of highlights go on for hours as the interview plays for the jury. Without going into a lot of detail, I'm going to list the items that Barnett found important throughout the video. She establishes that Sandy named her husband as Jamie Melgar and that the couple was supposed to be celebrating their wedding anniversary. Then she points out that Sandy says they went to dinner at 8 o'clock, but check out how she frames this question. Barnett, I want to stop there for a second. You asked if they went to dinner at 8, and then she adds that they stayed there for a long while. Did you ask her how long she was there? Doucet, I did not. Barnett, does that happen through the course of the interview in different parts? Where she either evades your question or she answers a question that you didn't ask? Answer, yes. So what we have here is Sandy trying to provide as much information to the detectives as possible. He asks what time they went to dinner and she tells him and explains how long they were there at the restaurant. There's nothing too terribly interesting about this information. We know for a fact that Sandy and Jim did go to Los Cucos for dinner, and we know for a fact that they paid their tab at around 9.30. But Barnett somehow turns this into something devious. Does she either evade your questions or answer a question that you didn't ask? Next, Barnett stops the tape to point out that Sandy told the investigators that she thinks they got home around midnight, but the CVS receipt shows that they bought the mixers at 9.33 p.m. What she doesn't point out is the fact that Sandy is so confused that she can't even remember the name of the restaurant they were at. It takes a few minutes for her to recall the name of Los Cucos, and Sandy states repeatedly that she's guessing about all the times. She says she wasn't paying attention to the times. This is from the interview when Sandy is asked what time she got home. Quote, probably midnight. I'm just guessing. I don't know. End quote. And again, this is being framed and set up as Sandy changing her story and lying about the times. Listen to this clip. This is what was actually said. And ask yourself if you hear Sandy lying about times or trying her best to remember details and struggling throughout the process. Okay, where time we at? Uh, Mexican restaurant. I think it was uh, 
jacuzzi? Both of y'all got in the jacuzzi? Yes. Okay. Then where were you sitting in the jacuzzi? My back towards, um, I was on the left, the left, facing it. Facing on the left, so by the mirror and the sink on that side, the left side, mm -hmm. not the bathroom side. There's a mirror on both sides. It's okay. On both sides. But if you're just standing straight at it, you're on the left side. And then what, where was your husband at? On the right side. Okay. And then what? Stayed there for about... Maybe two hours, talking and drinking a bit. What were we talking about? We were supposed to be celebrating our anniversary. When is your anniversary? Of December? And I'm sorry, what, what time did you get into the jacuzzi? I don't keep track of time, I just... Sometime after we finished dinner. Went to dinner at eight? No, about maybe eight. We stayed there for what, a long while. What time did you get home? Um, probably midnight. Okay. I'm just guessing. I don't know. This entire segment of direct examination is a spin game. Next, Barnett asks about the garage door. She has Jusay testify not just that there was no signs of forced entry, but that there was no forced entry. She leads him to this response, and Mac, of course, objects to the leading, but it doesn't matter. The jury already heard a police officer state that there was no forced entry. Barnett, at some point you make a realization that there's no forced entry anywhere, right? Jusay. Yes, correct. And the charades don't stop there. Remember when Sandy was asked in her interview about the garage doors? She's asked if Jim closed the door when they got home, and Sandy says that she doesn't know because she went inside first. During the testimony, that's framed as her not answering Doucet's questions, like she's evading. And Barnett even uses some linguistic techniques to taint the juror's view of Sandy. For example, during the interview, Sandy says that the door on the right was closed when they got home. No big deal, she's just giving details to the best of her ability and memory. But when Barnett asks about this, she doesn't use the word told you or stated. Instead, she uses the word admit. Barnett, during this segment, do you get her to admit anything about whether the garage doors were open or closed? Do say, yes, she admitted that the door was closed when she got home. Now, if he had said something like, she told me that the door was closed... That sounds like Sandy's just helping and providing details. But when you say that you got her to admit that the door was closed, now it sounds like you've caught her in a lie and coerced her into confessing to something that she didn't want to tell you. Here's say getting Sandy to admit that the garage door was closed. <clears throat> so y'all pulled in there around midnight. Did you close the garage? I went in first. Mm -hmm. uh, he had... A couple, a couple of bags, well, our doggy bags and what we got at CVS to get. So I think he made two trips. I don't know who closed it. I went, I, I grabbed the drinks and went to the tub. I mean, he'd have to close the door behind the infinity. It was closed tonight, right? 
It was yeah. still, it was closed. Yeah. So what about the other garage door? We, the only time he opens that one is if he's working or throwing out trash. So was it closed when you got home last night? But besides, y'all had to open the one to get the car in the garage. Right. The other one was closed. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you didn't know of him opening it back up last night. Choosing to use the word admit was no accident. It's simply a tool to frame statements in a favorable way to the jury. I often wonder if any of the jurors have listened back to Sandy's interrogation and feel like they were bamboozled by the prosecution. We've heard a few of them state publicly that Sandy changed her story repeatedly throughout the interview. And this is why. They didn't just listen to the interview play. They heard a chopped up version of the interview with Dusay and Barnett commentating throughout the entire thing. The jury was being told that Sandy was lying, evading, and changing her story. And I believe that's why when Jim Fitzgerald analyzed the interview, he had a far different opinion of Sandy's responses. He didn't listen while having a police officer and a prosecutor telling him what he was hearing. Uh, I thought she handled herself relatively well uh, in the interview. I did not see any overt indications of lying. I did not see her, you know, changing her story around in any significant sense. I didn't see any body language changes where she's... Next, Barnett wants to know if Sandy needed Kleenex during her interview. Doucet says that it wasn't necessary for him to go fetch tissues from the squad room because he never saw any tears. Barnett just keeps pointing out as many inconsistencies as she perceives them as she can. At first, Sandy says they didn't drink very much, but she changed her story later. That type of thing. Barnett is taking every opportunity she can to frame Sandy as lying and changing her story. And again, it's no wonder that the jury walked away from this testimony believing that she changed her story multiple times. And then Barnett really digs in on the strawberries. Doucet says that he and Carazal are in constant communication with the crime scene investigators. Then Barnett asks him if he saw the bowl of strawberries. He had seen them, and he testified that none of them were eaten, which is a problem because Sandy says that she thinks she ate one. But let's not forget that Maurice Carpenter testified, before Doucet, that it was obvious that one of the strawberries had been eaten. Next, we hear about Sandy evading questions about the dogs barking. But in reality... She says that Jim got out because the dogs were barking, but she's having difficulty remembering if she actually heard them or not. Then Barnett wants to discuss Sandy's recollection of Jim going to get ice and Sandy getting out to use the bathroom. Quote, He gets out to get ice, comes back, she gets out, gets back in, she doesn't talk about falling here at all, right? Doucet, no. Barnett, does she change her story? Doucet, yes. Again, pay attention to the word choices used here. She changed her story but the reality is that she didn't change her story at all. She didn't include and likely didn't remember her little slip when she was getting out of the tub at this point. Later, when she's asked about the bruise on her arm, she remembers that she slipped and Jim caught her by the arm. But if that was a lie, there was no utility in it. Remember that later when she does recount that event, she concluded that Jim had grabbed her on her right arm, but the bruise in question was on her left arm. Once again, this is Sandy trying her best to remember what happened little details that would have seemed insignificant at the time. But during this testimony, it's just another example of Sandy changing her story. And for the record, adding more detail to a narrative when prompted is not the same thing as changing your story. 
Next, Barnett points out that Sandy is using the jacuzzi running as an excuse for not hearing anything. And then the fact that Sandy brings up the chair blocking the door, but she couldn't see the chair from inside. She, of course, doesn't draw attention to the fact that Sandy says she doesn't know how the chair was blocking the door, just that it was in the way. And then we hit on the lack of tears again. At this point in the interview, Sandy is crying with her face buried in her hands. Doucet says he's watching to see if she's really crying. And then we have a new theory. This is the part in the interview where Sandy mentions the car following them from the CVS. This is presented as though Sandy is grasping at straws, trying to explain away her own involvement in the murder. But here's the thing. That would have been much easier to accomplish by her saying that the garage door was left open and she saw a bushy-haired stranger in the house. She never helps herself through any of this interview, even with the car that was possibly following them. She says it turned the other direction as they were entering their neighborhood. Sandy says that she doesn't think Jim would have opened the door for a stranger. Again, not helping herself. And then she goes on to say that she doesn't think he would have been going for his gun. Doucet's assessment of this is that Sandy's attempting to redirect him away from her, which honestly baffles me. She never points the finger at anyone else, even when it would have been very easy for her to have done so. But when she is clearly trying to absorb what has happened and is trying to recall events and attempts to add some context for the detectives, now she's redirecting. And what's really happening here is that Doucet's testimony is playing out just about like all the other law enforcement testimony in this case. Everything is presented through the lens of Sandy being guilty, rather than a simple statement of fact. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. The spin game continues with discussions about the back door. Barnett. So she answers that the front door is locked. Does she answer that the back door is locked? Do say. No. So the question right before that was, did he lock the door last night? She says he was working outside. Do say. Yes. Doesn't answer the question? Do say. Correct. In reality, this is a counter-indication of deception. Sandy didn't just not answer the question as they're trying to say here. She says that she doesn't know. She knows that Jim was in and out of that door during the day, and she knows that she didn't lock the door. And that's the entirety of the information that she has on the subject. If she was lying and trying to, pun intended, open the door to the idea that someone broke into her house to kill Jim, I would expect her to say the door was unlocked. This was another opportunity where she could have helped herself, and she doesn't take it. She just tells the truth. 
She doesn't know if the door was unlocked. Next, a big deal is made out of the fact that Sandy says, I know how this looks, but I was tied up. Barnett actually tries to separate those two statements as separate thoughts. She kind of plays dumb. Well, here she says that she knows this looks bad for her, but she also says that she was tied up, which looks good for her. The thing that I actually noticed about that exchange in the interview is that Sandy only mentions being tied up. If this was staged, I would expect her to say something like, I couldn't have done this because I was tied up and there was a chair barricading me into the closet. The fact that she didn't mention the chair tells me that she didn't realize the chair would have prevented her from getting out. She's indicated that there was a chair in the way of the door when Herman was getting in, but she doesn't seem to know that it was propped up under the doorknob. I'm going to try to speed things up as we move along through here, because a lot of it is the same thing over and over again. Sandy's lying, Sandy's evading questions, and Sandy's changing her story. So Burnett's next stop is that Sandy first says that Jim was gone from the tub to take care of the dogs for 15 or 20 minutes. Although Sandy actually says that she's guessing about the time, which, of course, isn't mentioned. And spoiler alert, as you know, Sandy later guesses that the time might have been shorter, which, of course, is presented as her changing her story. It's then established that Jim was killed in the closet approximately 20 feet away from the tub. Doucet says he sees signs of a violent struggle in the closet, and he would expect a person sitting in the tub to hear that struggle occurring. It's a little bit difficult to track where Barnett is at in the interview when she's asking some of these questions. But from context, we see that in the earlier portion, she points out that Sandy mentions hearing the dogs barking when Herman and his family arrived. Now, Doucet claims that all of the dogs were locked up in the office when police arrived on scene. Although we actually know that that's not true. Only two of the dogs were in the office, and the other two were running free. But really, that's neither here nor there. The point Barnett makes is that if the dogs were locked up in the office, they weren't, but that's not what the jury's hearing, and Sandy can hear the dogs when Herman gets there, then why couldn't she hear Jim struggling with his attackers? After all, he was closer to her than the dogs were. Barnett goes on to draw attention to the fact that Sandy checked Jim for a pulse when he's found. Quote, Is it possible she's thinking about anything that she would leave behind? End quote. Mac objects to that one and the judge sustains it. And then Barnett asks about the parts of the interview where Doucet is asking Sandy about any possible suspects. You remember in the interview, she says that they were in the process of evicting one of their renters. But Sandy says that she doesn't think that they would have done this. Doucet also asks her if she can think of anyone who might have had a problem with Jim that might have killed him. And Sandy says that she can't think of anyone. Okay, I have to stop this right here. Full disclosure, I'm in a hotel right now and I have to get to the airport to fly home. Right now it's about 2.45 p.m. on Friday. And I just now received word that the Maryland Court of Appeals has issued a ruling in a non-Syed's case. In a 4-3 ruling, the court has determined that Anand is not entitled to a new trial. His conviction has been reinstated. I really don't even know what to say at this point. I'm just absolutely stunned. All of this is developing right now as I'm speaking to you. I can't even imagine the pain that's spreading around the world right now. I'm so sorry for Adnan, his parents, Rabia, Saad, and everyone that loves him. This is just devastating. At this point, I need to shift my focus onto trying to absorb what just happened. 
The only answer I have for any of you right now is that the only option Anand has left is to file a habeas writ in federal court. I promise I'll have more of this on this week's follow-up. I had more material to cover, but this just came into me from a listener, and I'm just trying to figure out what exactly is happening. And this episode's going to air on Sunday, so tonight, meaning Sunday, the new four-part docuseries on Anand's case is going to premiere on HBO. The timing of this is just insane. Today really should have been a day of celebration, and instead, this is just tragic. I have to head to the airport now, and I'll have more on Anand's case as I learn more. Until next week, my thoughts and prayers are with Adnan and those who love him. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com, Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus. Terms apply.